Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome, everybody. We're going to be talking today about unpacking Myanmar's failed coup and have a roundtable discussion with a number of really distinguished and knowledgeable people going to be able to shed some light on what's an extremely complicated and rather dark and gloomy situation in the country. I, I still usually refer to it as Burma, also known as Myanmar. So as I say, welcome, everybody. This is an event which is co-hosted by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies here at the University of Copenhagen. I'm Duncan McCargo, and I'm the, the director of NIAS and a professor of political science here at the university. We're running the event along with DIES, the Danish Institute of International Studies, and the New York Southeast Asian Network on NISIAN. So this is a collaborative venture, and we're very pleased to be joined by four scholars who are going to comment on what has been going on over the past few months in Burma. This is, as I say, a difficult situation. In the title, we put the provocative phrase failed coup. We're in a, a, the ironic situation of having a successful and unsuccessful coup at the same time. The coup is very much still with us. It hasn't failed in the sense that the military has gone away. I guess the failure that we're debating and discussing today is the failure of those who staged the coup to bring the population, uh, for the most part, on board with what has happened and their failure to secure legitimacy both domestically and internationally. And that's the conversation that we're going to be having. So I'm joined by four speakers. First is Ardith Mung Thung Mung, who is Professor and Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. She's been a very active scholar following what's been going on in her original home country of Myanmar for many years at a time when very few people were going there. She was going back every year, spending summers and doing all sorts of adventurous field work in different parts of the country. We also joined from UMass Lowell by Miatte Titsar, who's a PhD candidate on topics related to politics of the country. We're also joined by Hélène Maria Kied, who is a senior researcher and head of research unit at the Danish Institute for International Studies. She's also the editor of a recently published collection about everyday justice in Myanmar, which the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies Press brought out last year. And we also did a podcast on that. And we also have with us Liu Stolzer-Gaberit, who is a postdoctoral researcher at Lund University. She's also the co-founder of the Myanmar Action Group in Denmark. So we have a great panel. We're going to talk about a range of different topics. And the first one is really about the nature of the opposition to the military takeover, how it's unfolding, and how it's been developing. I don't know if, Liu, you'd like to say something about the question of Generation Z and the great salience of younger people in the protests, which seems to have been such a feature of what's been happening. Yes. Well, so I've been working with prisons in Myanmar for many years. And of course, that also means working with political prisoners. So I've been working with a lot of the people who were student activists in former uprisings. We have these different generations. And this time with the coup, we see again the young people rising. So therefore, Generation Set has been a major player in the resistance movement. And it's interesting to see how much Generation Set has actually learned about democracy in the short period that the country has been open. So quite shortly after the coup, Generation Set, they had two strategies that they used. One was they called for federal democracy, and they fought for that by 
disabling the state that's in place now through civil disobedience. Civil disobedience was something they spread the news around and also got the older generations to engage in because a lot of the young generation are still students, but then they support the people who are part of this civil disobedience movement. And then we also saw them in the streets in a range of different street protests. Uh, and we've been seeing how they learn from other protesters in the region. They exchange information through the Milk Tea Alliance. And they've been extremely creative and skilled at adapting the demonstrations to the strategy of the military in attempts to stay nonviolent for as long as possible. You mentioned this Milk Tea Alliance, Leo, and this is really Interesting for those of us who work on other parts of Southeast Asia and beyond, the idea of a kind of emerging alliance of progressively oriented young people, many of them not even yet out of their teens, linked together by sort of common themes of opposing authoritarianism in the region, Hong Kong protests, the Thai protests. Is there something about this generation that's different from previous generations? Like we also always hear about the, the 88 generation and the 90s generations in the Burmese context. I think the technology that allows them to communicate is the main difference because you also saw people from, like young people from the Communist Party moving to neighboring countries and trying to learn stuff in, in 88 and, and previous uprisings. But this time you really, you have the ability to get knowledge from other demonstrators and protesters. And you have other protesters in the region that can teach you something about this situation. Because often we come as international organizations and as Western scholars and try to teach them how to stand up for democracy. But we have no real knowledge, no real experience of how it is to be in that actual situation. As we have a lot of South-South exchange of knowledge. I think it's mainly the technological advancement and the way they are able to use that. And they're able to use it even when the military tries to crack down and tries to shut down the internet. It's quite impressive how you see demonstrations being live streamed while the internet is being shut down as much as the military is able to. Right. Yeah. And we've seen the internationalization of some of these symbols, like the Hunger Games salute moving across the region, posing the Thai coup to uh, posing the, the Burmese coup. And we also saw Thais out on the streets banging pots and pans in emulation of their fellow protesters in Yangon. Perhaps I can move to you, Mette, to tell us something about how the opposition movement has been organizing itself. What's going on with all this? Thank you very much, Tenken. The more popular terminology is CRPH, comedy representing Pidozutluto. Uh, this Pidozutluto is the union legislature in, in English. So this actually CRPH is kind of being considered in this current context as a legitimate government representing them in the current context. So kind of like serving as umbrella body, you know, that can organize movements and all sorts of political dynamic where the anti-movements, all of these things actually kind of more and more center around this CRPH. So let me give some a brief background. CRPH came into existence with initiation of some younger generations of NLD MPs, while the older generations of NLD CECs and MPs were still waiting instructions from the leaders in the aftermath of the coup. So 
long story short, the CRPH was formed four days after the coup out of 13 two elected members of ethnic political parties and the rest are of NLDs and 389 other elected members endorsed CRPH. So the soon after national unity government was formed, the number of the CRPH members were increased to 20 members. So throughout the process, there is a lot of challenges. And then uh, we can see some kind of all main areas where CRPH has still been trying to embrace this ethnic diversity to shape an image of having national unity. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's clearly a, a, a fascinating development and very telling about what's going on. I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts as to whether it's likely that this government, the CRPH, could receive any degree of genuine international recognition as opposed to tea and sympathy from embassies and uh, foreign ministries around the world. Does anybody else have any thoughts or insights on that? Adding to Mirte, first of all, with the national unity government, I think what is also interesting to pay attention to, apart from including the ethnic political parties, is that we also have some quite uh, significant civil society figures like the Minister of Human Rights, which, by the way, is a totally new ministry in Myanmar. There's never been a Ministry of Human Rights before, who is also from the LGBT community. So embracing this kind of diversity also beyond the political party landscape is, I think, a very significant and very interesting move. There's also some of the younger women who have been heading the protest movement who has also been become part of the national unity government. I think uh, these are very significant developments despite the challenges of, of creating this uh, deep unity after a long history of, of splits, splits and, and distrust. But I think those are very significant. I know that they are also working at the moment. Uh, I heard a webinar last week uh, mm -hmm. uh, from Columbia University with the Ministry of Human Rights that they're also working mm -hmm. uh, on how to relate to the Rohingya and, and recognizing them as an ethnic group in Myanmar. And I think then coming back to your question about international recognition, I think moves like these uh, could be very important uh, in terms of international recognition, but in terms of recognizing the National Unity Government or CRPH as a government in itself doesn't have much historical precedence. There are not many times that states have recognized uh, exiled or shadow government, so that is a big sort of legal challenge in the international landscape. But I'm not a legal specialist in that field, but I know that people have been commenting that is a huge challenge. Right. Yes. Uh, and I also noticed in the event I joined the, the pitch for, on the, the Rohingya issue, but of course, that's a wild pivot against what the NLD has been saying up to now and would could be construed as criticizing previous uh, positions. So it gets into quite a lot of interesting terrain here. Ardith, yes. Um, yeah, so I think that the legitimacy and the future of NUG government also depends very much on their relationship with ethnic armed groups, right? So uh, ethnic groups, until lately, they were the only organizations that have access to arms. But there are at least 21 ethnic armed groups that have taken up arms against the state for greater autonomy and independence, for greater autonomies for uh, minority ethnic groups. But they vary in size, in legitimacy, in their relationship with the military as well as the NLD government. Some of them had ceasefire, some of them are members of nationwide ceasefire agreement. So they have a very complicated relationship with not just the military, but also with the NUG government. And generally speaking, they are against the military 
coup, but they have not really engaged actively in armed resistance against the military. And the only two organizations that have currently engaged in war against the, the military are PIA in China border and the Grand State. They have a dilemma because they don't also trust the NUD government that much, uh, given the fact that their past experience uh, dealing with the NLD government, which they saw as another Burmanized organizations. Some of them have provided shelter, training defectors from the Myanmar military, which uh, Helena will talk more about and uh, provide shelter to protesters, even though they don't actively support, they don't formally recognize NUG as a parallel government. They at least see the, I'm talking about generally speaking, because it's also varies among different groups. They see the NUG government as one of the entity of the broader coalition movement that are against the military. So the nature and relationship between these different groups and the NUG government will very much determine the directions in which the opposition movement is uh, leading. Great. Yeah, it's not straightforward, is it? And I've got another abbreviation, NUG, which I guess is that's the National Unity Government, right? Which is another abbreviation that we can use for this emerging force. And Ellen, do you want to say something about what's going on inside the security forces of the Myanmar government in the police and the military? Because this seems to be a very, very important area as well, talking about legitimacy of the state. Yes, so acknowledge that we can get access to because obviously the environment for doing research at the moment is very, very difficult. But we have done a piece of research on defecting police officers, both based on secondary social media and media analysis, but also with a few select interviews based on trust and people uh, that were well known to the researchers. And the research, uh, unfortunately, had to be anonymized for security reasons, but I'm very thankful for them for doing this work. So it is clear that if you look at the picture of violent crackdowns, that the police is under the command of the army and have been participating in arrests and in the violence against protesters. We have also seen reports of lootings and all kinds of brutal acts also from the police forces. And obviously, this has also created a fear and anger amongst the population. But there is also another side uh, to this story, because at the moment, we know that at least 800 police officers have are known to have defected and joined this civil disobedient movement that Liu was talking about before. These strikes of uh, public sector and also increasingly private sector workers, uh, some have gone quite public on social media about it. This is not a big number, 800 out of a force of what is estimated of 80,000 police officers, but it still tells us something about the security forces not being a homogenous force and that there are dissatisfaction and resistance within the force. But at the same time, our study also found out that it's extremely difficult and extremely dangerous to leave the force, not only for the individual police officers because of the kind of prosecutions that they can face if they defect and are caught, but also for their families, not only in terms of livelihood, losing a job, but also that the army is deliberately threatening the family members of people who defect from the police force. So what we have seen is that police officers from the civilian branches who have been brought up also under another kind of training in more community-based policing, but who has also worked among communities over the past 10 years and that have closer relationships and also more accountability to local communities are mainly those who defect, but also who in the everyday are trying as much as they can to defy engaging in these violent crackdowns. So we have some police officers reporting um, 
that they have warned protesters, they've warned people in the civil disobedience movements where to protest, where not to protest. So there is this kind of underground maneuvering going on. Right. Yeah, these are obviously incredibly important developments and extremely difficult to get full information about. I don't know if any other of our speakers would like to jump in here. You, you have worked a lot with prisons. I'm just wondering within the prison service, because I mean, they're receiving all these political prisoners at the moment. How do you see people working within that field? I mean, that's also part of the establishment of security forces, detention services. I think in the prison staff, there's a lot of people who would like to participate in this, but who don't find themselves able to, because like you also say, there is this fear of, of what will happen, not only to yourself, but also to your family. So I think there are people who want to. The people I talk to say that they are aware that they are under heavy surveillance. They don't dare to post anything on their Facebook about supporting the resistance because they know that they are being kept an eye on. I'm also working on a piece about some of the the women who have been detained in connection with the military coup. The accounts that we have from there, they also talk about some prison staff who try to help but then find themselves unable to because of the structures and hierarchies inside the prison. So I think there's there's a lot of well-meaning people within the prison service that don't dare to fully shift size. And therefore, I think another interesting aspect is not only those who defect, but also what kind of everyday resistance do we see inside the services of those who don't dare to take the full step, but who still don't share the, the values of the military. Uh, and I think those people will also be very important for the protection of the political prisoners. And also when there are crackdowns on the demonstrations, those people can play a, a vital role for the protection of people. Great. Thanks a lot. Maybe we can move on then to talk about what's been going on in terms of the strategies of the opposition. Yes, again. So we have a different strategies. Every day we have seen a new strategy. So I actually want to put focus on that importance of civil society organizations because since three days after the coup, you know, all of these mass demonstrations, mass movements being led by the civil society organizations, trade union, that as this also discussed already, these initiative by the Generation Zs. But thanks to the civil society efforts, we can see all of these uh, visible movements. Um, the country you know, they have been forming network like people defense force. So then we can also identify more invisible efforts of civil societies in the area of forming network. So that Network has also been engaging with national unity government, CRPH, and also international communities to make all of these social understanding and conceptual change gained through this uh, recent movement became normative changes. The role of civil society organizations, you know, as a powerful invisible hands behind the scenes is really important. Thanks very much. Yeah, maybe I can go back to the strikes, whether you wanted to talk about that, Ardith, but with these, the strikes and clearly when you have strikes of the kinds that have been taking place, it has an enormous impact on ordinary people. Does it have a parallel impact on the regime? Is this actually effective in changing the power dynamics and the thinking of those who've seized power when these strikes take place? 
Well, initially, I just want to summarize what Nyate has just said. Initially, the resistance was very peaceful against the military coup. It was very peaceful. You see massive, massive nationwide peaceful protests against the military. You've seen CDM, which is Civil Disobedience Movement, mm-hmm. by doctors, teachers, and railroad workers, and you know people who work at the post facilities or bank employees of the mm-hmm. central banks. Uh, refuse to go to work, and you also see various applications that have a list of military businesses for people inside the country to boycott, uh, to refuse to buy products from the military. So it, it really undermined the, the military legitimacy. But as the military has intensified its repression. You see that people switching more on violent strategies. Many protesters have fled to the border areas, to areas controlled by armed groups, and and they have been trained. And so recently, you have seen that explosion in several city areas, uh, which are targeted against uh, either police stations or uh, military bases, or there were reports of administrative local administrators being killed or being threatened with uh, all those threats. So. Uh, there has been a shift in strategies in terms of people, and like Nyate talks about, you know, community-based resistance movement. But I think that protesters and people will continue to use a variety of strategies depending on the, the military actions against the military response to this. Uh, however, uh, this coup has generated the level of humanitarian crisis that we have never you know, witnessed before. And I would say that the crisis is caused not just by protests, also by military's actions to restrict political and economic activities, including restrictions on mobile internet access that affects money transfer and trade flow and restrictions on transports of goods, as well as economic sanction against the military. The economy has come almost to a halt uh, since that the military took uh, over power in, on February 1st but that clearly bringing the economy to a halt is not bringing the regime to a halt in and of itself. And hence we see this diversification of strategies. This is the problem. Yeah. Seems to affect ordinary people more so than yeah. the military. Liv, do you want to follow up on the, the shift in tactics towards? Yeah, maybe just to add on a more personal level for the people who actually make this change and make the decision, because most of the people that I talked to, they started with, nonviolent methods. And one of the people that I talked to, I talked to him yesterday because he joined the the KIA for training and he's been speaking for a long time about how hard it was to go to the street and see people be slaughtered and not being able to defend yourself or your comrades. So, So he's now changed completely to the violent strategies. And he says, we cannot get anywhere with the shadow government before we take down the military, because we cannot sit at a table with the military and negotiate. So first priority is to take down the military. Um, And for him, that means to kind of compromise with the ideals that he's lived after for his whole life and get into violent struggle. And I think it's going to have a lot of consequences for the people who have to make these hard decisions and go into violent struggle. And it had for previous generations as well. In 88, we saw the same. I talked to one of the 
protesters from 88 a few months ago before the nonviolent was turning violent. And he said he was so happy to see the younger generation new nonviolent strategies. He was so happy to see that they wouldn't have to go through the same that he did when he joined the ABESDF. But now, because the situation is so desperate, we see them having to go through the same. And I think it's important to remember also when we witness what's going on, that even though we might like to see an innocent movement that doesn't step in any wrong direction, they are acting out of necessity. Um, and you cannot live up to your ideals in a situation like the one they are in today. Yes, that's a, a sort of a, a depressing reality check, and we'll get to future scenarios in a minute, but that sounds like a, a future scenario for rather a lot more violence. And if you had anything else to add, Ellen? Well, very shortly, I agree with everything that's been said, but I think that these people's defense forces, I mean, they are popping up here and there right now, and if we see how the army is dealing with the situation, it's very similar to how they have reacted to those ethnic armed organizations that have been strongly against the coup, like uh, the Karen National Union, as an example, is that they strike back uh, in those particular localities. So Mindat in Chin State is a good example of this. That was an effort by the local people to organize and basically close off the town and excluding the military from coming in. But now they have to flee the city because the army is responding back with the airstrikes. So if the strategy of sort of people's defense forces is to work, it needs to be really a united and very widespread movement because as long as it's only in specific localities, like among certain select few ethnic armed organizations or certain select few localities, the army can concentrate and move. But if it's very spread out, I would question that the army, even though it's very strong and it's got the strongest weapons, it would be very difficult for the army to work on all fronts at the same time. And here I'm not trying to encourage widespread uh, armed conflict or war, but just to say how it's looking right now with these kinds of self-defense. Under the current situation, it's looking very dark because it's still only in certain parts. Thanks very much, Alain. Don't know, Edith, if you want to say a little bit more about the economic effects and the, the sort of humanitarian consequences of, of the coup. We have touched on it, but did you want to elaborate? Yes. So this immediate consequence of the military coup has been displacement in conflict areas with people with no immediate access to food and medical facilities, as well as loss of job, uh, reduced income, inability to repay loan. And in addition to that, ordinary people are facing a situation of not only reduced loss of income, but also rising prices. Because political instability caused the decline in the value of jobs. So at the beginning of the coup, you have, you know, the exchange rate was about 1,300 jobs per dollar. Now it has gotten up to, you know, 1,600, uh, 1,700 uh, jobs per dollar. And this led to the rise of price in food and basic items, especially imported items such as fuel, cooking oil, uh, fertilizer, and the increase in fuel prices also led to increase in domestic transportation costs. So in some areas, we've seen a price of transportations went up uh, two times. So the World Bank and the Fitch solution uh, predicted that the size of economy will shrink by uh, 10 to 20 percent. And some survey revealed that the majority of households now earning only half of their income. 
And I think the most depressing prediction is by UNDP, which predicted that if this trend continues, half of the populations will live under poverty very soon. Another concern that I have is healthcare crisis. And this is due to civil disobedience movement by medical doctors who pioneer this civil disobedience movement, especially on COVID. We've seen that the military has offered COVID vaccination to limited number of people, but this was extremely disorganized and there was really no guarantee that the vaccine were appropriately stored or kept in the right temperature. Uh, there have been a few places in major cities that conduct test for COVID, but overall, the military does not have any capacity to handle this impending health crisis in the country if it is were to be hit by the third wave of COVID in the same way as the neighboring countries that India has faced. But there are reports that COVID patients for instance, in Moon State, have to travel to Korean State to receive treatment because of the lack of treatment and facilities. So my concern is that this humanitarian, the crisis impact on ordinary people, and we can talk a little bit more about how this crisis has varying impacts on people from different localities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and different occupations. Thanks very much, Arlith. I just want to give everybody a chance to reflect on future scenarios and where we could possibly go from here. I think it's harder to find optimistic scenarios as each passing week and month goes on here. Maybe I could ask each of you to say something about a scenario that you are thinking about or concerned about or hoping for. There can be several scenarios, but I think I want to just focus on one possible one, and that is to what extent there can be splits and crack within the army. Mm -hmm. There can be a coup within the coup, so to speak. I don't see it happening at all right now, and people who know a lot more about the military than I do also say that this has no historical precedence. Even the, the efforts that's been before historically have failed because it's an incredibly strong institution. It's very hierarchical. It built up around strong patent-client relationships where soldiers are bound up through their salaries to the military companies where they get part of their salaries through that. It's ideologically very tight. People are kept in the military, are not allowed to leave. I spoke before about how families are under threat. But there could be some avenues. One is if the economy keeps on breaking down, if the sanctions are effective, if people continue to boycott the military-owned companies, a lot of also lower-ranking soldiers live off of also having their own incomes because salaries are really bad. But also lack of morale, because the reports we're hearing coming out of some of the certain soldiers is that the lower ranks are living off of rice that you normally would feed to pigs. I mean, they are the morale within the army is really decreasing. Uh, and here, the sort of ambivalent sort of situation also with the armed resistance to it is that for desertions to snowball and people to actually leave the army en masse, there need to be some alternatives. And there I can also see uh, the building up of a federal army and the People's Defense Force as creating sort of an alternative for deserting soldiers and police go. But whether it will happen at the higher level is a much bigger question. And there, I think we may look to a role that the region could play. I don't have much belief in ASEAN, but perhaps China. If China feels that the instability is becoming too high and their economic interests are affected, we could envision, at least behind closed doors, that China could put some pressure on at least fractions within the army. So there are some possibilities there of cracks, but still very uncertain of whether that would happen. Hey, thanks, Alain. Liv? Yeah, so there's a lot of reasons to be uh, be quite depressed uh, because it's a hard struggle that's uh, ahead. But I want to pick up on one of the things that makes me hopeful, uh, which is 
I hear a lot of people comparing to North Korea when when talking about so what is it the state is trying to do like what what kind of state is the military imagining uh, and because the control and the, that they try to implement is is so extreme then North Korea is where people look to uh, but there is a major difference there are probably many but but one of the key differences is that in North Korea, the leaders are seen as godlike. Uh, and in Myanmar, the military doesn't even have the support of the people. And I think this is a key difference that make it impossible for the military to, to reach a stage where Myanmar will be like North Korea. And I think this also means that the resistance is vital. So even though there's no immediate result. And even though it's a long struggle and it, it can take years um, to get through this, the resistance uh, will succeed. Okay, thanks a lot. Um, speaking out of turn, I'll, I'll abuse my position here and say, as far as I can see, Myanmar's light years away from North Korea. It's very, very close to Thailand, uh, where the military staged a coup and manipulated an election in order to claim that they're now a democratic government, even though anybody who studies the facts objectively does not believe that. And I guess I'm more concerned about, and of course, we don't have to look very far across then to Cambodia to see how you can institutionalize a one-party dominant regime by getting rid of opposition movements. So that's another scenario that's in my mind. I don't know if other people want to respond to that, but let me just throw that one into the works. So Ardeth, do you have a scenario for us? Yeah, I wish I wish I could predict the situations, but it's really difficult. I would usually look at the dynamic between the military and the opposition movement to come up with uh, different scenarios. I would say that a couple months ago, Myanmar was moving toward situations like not North Korea, but more like Syria or Iraq. Well, it was very chaotic, uh, very uncertain because the military was able to use just brutal force. It seems like the military is now able to bring the situations under control. You know, many sites that have been the place for a resistance and many of the protesters, if we have already talked about either fled or detained. So uh, the military is able to bring the situations under control in the core areas. But the problem is that it still could not run and manage the uh, daily operations of the government. Um, but, and and it's, it's been trying to run the government uh, economically and politically by starting to replace you know, all uh, local administrators and by issuing uh, threats against businesses to go back to open their businesses. So once it is able to start running the country, it might start thinking about long-term strategies like hosting elections, providing incentives for foreign investors to come back. And so I think the situation is almost like a situations in 1990s, 2000s, when the military is stay in control. But then again, you have opposition movement in the peripheral areas and and, and uh, along with other, you know, uh, civil disobedience movement uh, and nonviolent uh, resistance. So a lot of situations will depend on the dynamic between the military and the national unity government and other forces that are against the military. Amyate um, has talked about, and it will very much depend on whether the UG is able to uh, get support from foreign countries in terms of legitimacy and other supports, as well as whether they are 
are able to work among all the anti-coup forces, right? But one of the problem is Myanmar is facing right now and facing the past is the divisions within the opposition movement and which allow the military to divide and rule. And I will say that the one major significant difference between uh, 1988 and the current situation is the presence of diaspora. In 1988, in 1990, we don't have that many uh, Burmese people living abroad. Right now, we do have significant numbers of uh, Burmese people who are now citizens of you know, America or uh, UK or uh, European countries. And they have remained a, a major force uh, providing legitimacy and supports to the uh, NUG uh, government. But I feel like we're not in a situation where the military is continuing to consolidate its rule. Great. Thanks a lot. I'm afraid we're going to have to draw this really fascinating session to a close. Thanks so much, everybody, for joining. And thanks especially to our speakers for your great responses. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.